ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. The Real Housewives is a guilty pleasure for most, but if you're looking to not feel guilty about that pleasure, tune in to Everything Iconic with me, Danny Pellegrino, where I break down all the messy moments and behind-the-scenes antics of Bravo's popular franchise. And on Everything Iconic, I also interview celebrity guests like Kelly Ripa, Kiki Palmer, Drew Barrymore, Cameron Diaz, and more about their guilty pleasures, their past work, and so much more. So if you're pop culture obsessed and find yourself watching way too much reality TV like me, tune in to Everything Iconic with Danny Pellegrino, wherever you listen to podcasts. ACAST helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. ACAST.com I never got arrested. I tried to talk myself into a jail one night because I didn't have any place else to stay, (laughs) and the cops wouldn't let me in. Welcome to episode 94 of the Adventure Podcast with freight train rider and author Ed Davis. Ed began his writing career over 40 years ago, pausing in boxcars, under street lamps and in hobo jungles to record the beats and rhythms of the road as he caught freight trains and vagabonded around the Pacific Northwest and Canada. In the summer of 1972, Ed travelled across Canada, hitchhiking and hopping freight trains and writing letters to his girlfriend who would later become his wife. If you're a fan of the words of Kerouac or Steinbeck or Suffer in inverted commas from Wanderlust, I think you'll really enjoy this episode. It's a story of a time gone by with tales of vagabonds, subcultures, freedom and true modern day exploration. Before we begin, I'd like to talk to you about Sidetrack magazine, our sister publication. Sidetrack is an incredible quarterly journal that celebrates authentic stories of adventure and exploration. You can find out more at sidetrack.com. I'd also like to take a moment to push you in the direction of our charitable partner, the Martin Moran Foundation, who are doing incredible work engaging young people with the outdoors. You can find information about how you can support them on our Instagram bio at The Adventure Podcast. Finally, if you're enjoying the podcast, then please do subscribe on iTunes and leave us an honest review. They really do help us bring the podcast to a wider audience. Okay, over to Ed Davis. Thanks very much for sitting down with me. It's, I'm really excited about this one for lots of reasons, but um, we'll, get to, we'll get to interesting stories of urban adventure at some point, I'm sure. But um, it would be great if you could just start by introducing yourself and um, tell us who you are and what you do and whatever that means to you. Well, Matt, I'm, I'm thrilled to be here. It's really an honor to be uh, part of your podcast. Uh, my name's Ed Davis. I'm here, I think, because I'm associated with riding freight trains uh, back in the old days. God, it's, I'm almost 70 now. I'm 69. Uh, I think I rode my first train when I was 19, uh, back in the early 1970s. I've got a novel coming out. Uh, actually, the re- official release is a week from today. It's called The Last Professional. And it's not autobiographical, but much of the background and many of the events are based on things that actually uh, I did in, over the 10 or 15 years that I rode freights around uh, around the U.S. Amazing. And yeah, I'm extremely curious. So before we talk about 19-year-old Ed, 
um, I'm interested into what leads somebody to doing that sort of thing. So where did you grow up and, and what was early life like? Uh, well, I was born in Kansas City, Missouri, uh, 1952, and my uh, mother and father divorced when I was about four, and so my mom uh, brought us to California, and it was one of those, it, I think, sort of life-defining things that you don't realize until you're older. The divorce was not so much a divorce as she got us out. Of, she got us out of town because he was not a very good guy. One day, one day our dad was there. The next day he was gone. It was just like he had vanished because we left. And so, uh, at age five, I land in California uh, with my brother, who's six years older, and we came west partly on a train. I've always sort of felt that my affinity for trains and riding may have had its genesis there. The first place we got to the West Coast was Auburn, Washington. Uh, our grandfather was the head of the military supply depot there. And at the backyard of the house, there were train tracks. It was a huge uh, marshalling yard. And I remember as a very young boy uh, standing in the backyard and watching the trains and watching them go by. And uh, so somehow or other, I think that's fairly deep in my DNA. Uh, we moved to Sebastopol, California, a little agricultural town uh, known for the Gravenstein apple. If you've never heard of a Gravenstein, it's the best apple on the planet <laughs> where I was raised, a small town upbringing, small agricultural town, you know, envision uh, kids riding bikes with paper routes and campouts in the backyard and, uh, you know, played high school sports and worked at the feed store and worked at uh, the dairy ranches in the weekends and on, in the summer. So as my background, um, I had volunteered in high school at Sonoma State Hospital, which was in Sonoma Valley, where I live now. I had a science teacher who was a pretty forward-looking guy, and he said, you know, it's, it's good to uh, discover things around us that we might not see otherwise. And so he took a bunch of us as volunteers to this institution, 3,500 residents, and it was, it was the largest in the country at that time. And it was like stepping into another world. Um, the quality of care had not changed much in about 50 years. And so it was in some ways extraordinarily caring and compassionate, and in others, pretty medieval. And uh, so for a 16, 17-year-old kid to get exposed to that was um, eye-opening, pretty engaging, I decided to enter a training program there, and I became a psychiatric technician. Uh, yeah, at age 17, I entered the training program. I was way too young, and I worked there for a couple of years. So that's what, that's what brought me to Sonoma Valley. Getting around to why did I get on trains after a couple of years in that institution, I had to get out of Dodge. Um, it, was, it was hard for a kid. And so another fellow and I, um, been high school friends, he had also gone through the program. He wanted to go to Scotland to try to find his father. We had that in common. Um, so I just said, okay, I'll go with him. We got, in those days, you could get an open-ended round-trip ticket from uh, Kennedy to Heathrow for 200 bucks. And, but we had to get to Kennedy. And so, okay, we'll hitchhike. It's 1972. American youth are on the road. That's that's what everybody was doing. So what could be what could go wrong? Um, we're big guys. We had big army surplus backpacks. Nobody was giving us a ride. 
I mean, we, we simply were not getting a ride because we were so damn big. And finally, a fellow takes pity on us, picks us up in advance, says, you guys are too big to get rides. This is never going to work. You should be riding freight trains. Freight trains? How do you do that? You know, can you do that? Is that legal? Is that a thing? He said, oh, yeah, I've done it. I, he gave us some pointers. He dropped us off. I think it was in Eugene, Oregon. Half an hour later, we were on a flat car heading for Portland. Bright, clear, blue skies, wind in our hair. I never looked back. I was sold from that moment on. That is totally incredible. I mean, I, I, I kind of, over the last 10 years, have read a lot of kind of Kerouac and things like that. And I think it's probably a good time for you to give us a bit of background on freight train riding and what it's all about and where it comes from. Sure. Um, there, there's a lot of history here and I won't go, I won't go too deeply, but in a way, when the uh, Transcontinental Railroad was completed just after the Civil War, the country, the U.S., was in this crazy spot where it had torn itself apart. Um, 600,000 people had died on either side of the battle. There was a huge depression. And almost overnight, this magic carpet of steel rails appeared just about on people's doorsteps. Uh, there was one point at which 90% of the U.S. population lived within five miles of a train track. They were that ubiquitous. They were everywhere. And so if I'm a veteran coming back from the war, if I'm one of 10 kids on a farm and there's only food for five of them, if things have gone south in my little town, my options before were to hike or maybe do what Mark Twain did and get on a raft, go on a boat. Now, suddenly, I could walk five or six miles from my house and get on a train. Hundreds of thousands of people did it. Um, and it was there was an entire subculture built around it, a whole hierarchy of people who were just there to get from place to place. There was a criminal element of folks who were there to prey on the people just getting from place to place. And there were folks who found their home there. They found an avocation. They found a passion. Um, not unlike, you know, think of, I think you're a runner. I'm a runner. Um, there are people who run casually. There are people who run in competition. Then there are people who, are, who will run 50 marathons a year. That level of passion was this hierarchy of guys who rode the trains called profesh. They were professional hobos. It's what they did. They were sort of journeymen of manual labor. They could work anywhere. They could find meaningful work doing any number of things. But the work was to support the passion, and the passion was to be on the move. Um, they could get from coast to coast without a ticket in three days with no luggage and not go hungry um, because they knew how the trains worked. They knew where the hobo jungles were. And there was this whole network of them, sort of like youth hostels, except for travelers. So you'd roll into a jungle, there would be clean clothes there if you needed them, a place to cook, water, a shaving mirror. You would contribute food if you had it. You would get fed. Everybody would know where the law was. They'd know when the next train was going. You could use them as way stations as you moved around, around the country. So that's a bit of hobo history. But what do you think, I mean, I'm sure you've got your opinions or your own feelings, but what was the appeal for those men and women? You know, what, what was it that motivated them and why didn't they just settle and take the farm work and stay? 
Really good question. Uh, and I, I'll sort of take it in reverse order. Mostly men. Um, yeah, not, not unheard of for women, but it was a very dangerous and hostile environment. And I think a lot of it had to do with that sense that we see in the early days, um, after every conflict, after every war, the men who fight come out damaged. Many of them do. And they've lost their place. They've lost their mooring. Um, you know, it's, we certainly saw it. I think it was, at least in our country, it was, um, well, I'm going to go back to after the First World War, the whole notion of the lost generation. These fellows who came back from fighting no longer knew who they were. They were cut loose from the reality they had known. That was certainly true after the Civil War with a whole subclass of guys who they got back to the farm and said, I don't belong on the farm anymore. I don't know where I belong, but I got to get out of here. And they had the means to do it. Same thing after the Second World War to less way true after Vietnam. Um, you know, I don't think PTSD was even considered as a term or a, you know, what, what did they call it? Uh, battle fever or something like that. They had a name for it after the Second World War. But so why did people hit the road? That was one of the reasons. So why did they stay? I think it's something spoke to some of them uh, about this is this is giving me a relationship with the land it's giving me a way to relate to myself that i can't get any other way and again i, I think uh, mountain climbers who you know climb the 14 peaks surfers who surf every day um rain or shine good waves are bad they're on them why do they do that because something about the experience speaks to them in a way that nothing else does but not to over-intellectualize it, but I think, and bear in mind I'm coming at this probably from your side of the fence, um, <laughs> as someone who's dabbled a lot in, well, dabbled, played around with urban exploration, but those are natural things, right? You know, riding waves, climbing mountains. This is human infrastructure. It's illegal. You know, it's different, isn't it? It is. It absolutely is. And, and yet and not to romanticize it too much, but a freight train is almost like a force of nature. Um, it, it's, you know, hobos were sort of America's first Zen masters because you have no control over what this thing is going to do. When it comes, how fast it goes, where it's going to stop, who you're going to meet along the way, things will happen. It is all out of your hands. Just as in when you catch a wave, your best judgment will tell you what you think is going to happen, but until you're on it, you don't know. And until you're off it, it's an adventure every second. And it's the same way with catching a train. Even though it's this urban environment and that's going through a known landscape, the minute you your feet leave the ground, really before that, the minute you walk into the freight yard, you've entered a different realm in which it's just like waiting for a wave oh that's an amazing analogy you are what yeah you're waiting for the wave yeah and and how much does the illegality play into the game and the rush do you think well i think today and there are still people riding today i think that's a lot of it uh frankly it, it's sort of adrenaline riding and not to say that there wasn't a piece of that for me 
there clearly was. It was exciting and it was adventurous. But what's happened, at least in this country, is that uh, the good places to ride on trains are are harder and harder to find. There are very few open boxcars. Um, the trains are faster. Uh, the security is better. Particularly in the East Coast, on the high-speed lines, um, it's dangerous to even be around the damn things. You know, they're going too fast. And so that's a big piece of it now is that it's really illegal and it's dangerous. It's always been dangerous, but it's, I think the legality, it's more strictly enforced now. Was it always a part of it playing cat and mouse with the bulls? Railroad police are called bulls. Absolutely. Uh, that was always a piece of it, but the consequences were, well, I don't know, not as dire. Maybe I'm not sure that that's true. People died on the rails all the time. Uh, you fell between cars. There, you know, you were preyed upon by somebody who was trying to take your stuff. Um, you could end up in jail. That wasn't a, that wasn't uncommon, but it would be a night in the local jail, and that was it. Uh, generally speaking, unless you know, I never. I never got arrested. I tried to talk myself into a jail one night because I didn't have any place else to stay <laughs> and the cops wouldn't let me in. But to circle back to your question, how big a piece is the illegality? I think that adrenaline rush is a bigger piece now than it was when I was writing. But that's really interesting, I think, because it then I'm not saying that one's better than the other or um, more valid, but what fascinates me is that what you were doing and what other people were doing came from a place of... I mean, maybe necessity is pushing it, but it was certainly purpose-led. Yes, yes. And there were, there are classically three definitions of folks who rode trains. Um, there were hobos worked and wondered. That was their thing. They were the upper category. Tramps just wondered. They didn't work. And bums didn't do either. Um, that, that was sort of the, the classic notion. And, and so there was an element of necessity in all of that. Um, I mean, wow. The, today in every urban, virtually every city in the country, I think, the unhoused, the homeless are visible. They're everywhere. They're under overpasses. Um, they're in tents. They're in cardboard structures. They're just everywhere. Doesn't mean they weren't always here. We're just seeing them now because there was no hidden infrastructure that could absorb them. Um, when the hobo culture was more vibrant, or like after the Depression here, and the Hoovervilles, they called them, the, the amazing encampments of the unhoused, of people who were on the road, um, it, it's just a different look now. It looks different, but it's always been the case. Yeah. Okay. God, there's so many angles and avenues I want to go down here, but I think it would be a really nice point for you to tell us about your first experience then. So, you know, you, you couldn't, you couldn't hitch, you ended up on a flatbed. What happened? Uh, well, it was, it was classic in, in so many ways. We got to Portland, Oregon. Uh, I had, uh, my sister-in-law lived in Portland. We connected with her. This was Paul Morrison and I, um, we said, wow, this is great. We want to do this. What's the best way to get across the country? Well, we'll just get a train and go east. What could go? How hard could that be? And so we caught the first train out. We didn't know where the hell it was going. Um, we ended up going up the Columbia River Gorge uh, up to Pendleton. It was a fantastic ride. 
uh, again, you know, a gondola, which is like an open top to box car, starry night. You're sleeping on your back, looking at the stars, the wind. It was just fantastic. Got to Pendleton, found somebody in a rail yard, said, hey, you know, we're, we're trying to get to New York. Is this the best way to do it? And he said, absolutely not. The best way to do it is through Canada. You guys are nuts. You know, in, it's there's too many rail lines here. There's too much security. But in Canada, there's only one line goes east to west. So get yourselves to Canada, get on a train, you'll get there. So we turned around and went right back to Portland. I mean, literally the next day we retraced our steps, um, but then started to figure it out, started to talk to people on the road who could help us. Um, and this was a time again in the early seventies where the guys working in the yards, the older guys in particular, had mostly ridden themselves as kids. So there was a sense of affinity. You know, you'd run into a guy who was a jerk and would run you out or would sort of use his authority. I won't go any farther with that. But often you'd find a switchman or a brakeman who'd say, oh, yeah, I did this when I was a kid. You know, the way, the right way to do this, you guys, is to, and then you would get this advice from the old guy. And that's what got, that's what got us there. So we got to Canada, headed east, um, and spent, you know, a week riding and stopping and riding and stopping and uh, everything that comes with that. Um, what did that experience do to you? Well, it was, uh, it was life-changing, and, and I'm not overstating that. Uh, I was in a new relationship with a woman who is still my wife 46 years later, um, and so I was writing to her, writing her letters every day. Um, I had not considered myself a writer before that, I was experiencing this entirely new world of life on the rails and everything it brought with us, a sense of freedom, a little bit of danger, the adventure, clearly, the exploration. And so, you know, I, man, I'd get off a train, I'd be under a streetlight somewhere or in a parked boxcar, and I'd been scribbling as fast as I could. And somehow these three things coming together, my passion for this new relationship, my discovery of this way to see the world that I never had before, and the notion that I could put these things together. It was like alchemy through writing and share it with her. That's when I knew I wanted to be a writer. And obviously, you, you know, you've, you've spent the, the last, I assume, similar amount of time, 46, 50 years, however long, being a writer. Um, and, that, you know, we'll come on to that. But sure. did the freight riding end there? Oh, no. Oh, heavens, no. <laughs> Uh, thanks for asking. The freight riding mostly ended when we started having kids. Um, but, uh, and this is a, a wonderful story. Uh, I, I'd like to think it was the power of my words that so enchanted Jan, my wife, that the next summer we retraced our steps. She rode freights with me all the way to the East Coast. Um, it was fantastic. Yeah. And there were no women riding. Um, and she, I mean, the things we do for love. She uh, she was extraordinary, and it, it was it was it was a once in a lifetime experience for both of us. Yeah, that's. It. I mean, it's not a honeymoon, obviously, but it's a great pre pre wedding. Oh, yeah. Uh... <laughs> yeah, five five bucks a day between us, um, and it worked out just great. Yeah, we ended up working in a carnival for a while. We worked. We just stopped and worked to get money to keep doing what we needed to do. Um, it was. It was really something. But I, so I kept riding every chance I could. I mean, I worked, you know, we had to live. We built this house that you see behind me. Um, but 
I rode as again as an avocation any chance I could get, and probably did that until 1981 or 82 after our son was born and just before our daughter was born, and then I just I had to stop. Yeah, and does that way of life or does that way of travel still exist? I mean, we've touched on it slightly, but it's changed for sure. But is it recognizable at all? It, it is, um, and th- this is the public surface portion of this broadcast in which I say, don't do this at home. Don't do it. It's dangerous. It's illegal. You can get hurt. You can die. And I'm not overstating it. It's really true. However, if you're interested in seeing what it looks like, go on YouTube and look up freight hopping, look up riding freights. There are guys with GoPros now who are doing it and doing it smart. Um, You know, they pay attention. They don't put themselves at risk. Um, they're really, again, they're, they're like the surfer who surfs every day. They're doing it because they love the experience. Um, when I stopped riding early eighties, mid eighties, there was a period where it was amazingly dangerous because of the people who were riding. Uh, there was a awful lot of drug use. Uh, there was an awful lot of petty crime. There were serial killers that preyed on people on the freights. There some very famous, you know, killed 15 or 20 guys. So it was a very, very dangerous environment. Um, security clamped down and sort of, I think, stopped most of that from happening. The number of people riding shrunk like crazy. So the, the, the audience to prey on wasn't there. Um, but yeah, there's still people doing it. It's just, it's different now. It's a different experience. And um, how much were you inspired by writers who'd come before you writing about similar things? Well, uh, interestingly, on that first trip I told you about, Paul and I leaving, the first place we couldn't catch a ride was a river, uh, was a bridge across the Russian River up north of here, uh, near Cloverdale. We stopped, we camped under it. I don't know, two months later, I'm working in a kitchen in Scotland, washing pots to make money somebody gives me a copy of a book the dharma bums i read it and in the second chapter kerouac has stopped and slept under that same damn bridge <laughs> so, that's when i discovered kerouac and um it, it's he, he's an acquired taste but man the relationship with the experience of the land um nobody got it better and so great inspiration there and steinbeck uh you know, Steinbeck's depiction of American nomads is unmatched. And uh, there's something spoke to me that both of them had to say, I have a feeling it may have been because I was uprooted as a kid and moved west. I think there's some resonance there. And for you? For me, yeah. Yeah, okay. Yeah, and I don't want to get too heavy necessarily, but to what extent did you not run away, but... I don't want to put words in your mouth, but obviously the whole leaving your father young and not having that figure, you know, how did that mold and change you? Well, I think that if if I look back on much of the fiction I've written, it often has something to do with a character who's looking for his father. Um, and an interesting, it's not coincidental. I think this theme runs through a lot of fiction. I don't know if you've read any Kerouac, but uh, he and Neil Cassidy, basically, any time they were traveling, they were really always looking for Cassidy's old man. Um, 
they, they were doing the same thing. I think there's a, there's a piece of us, any of us who are separated at an early age from a father. I think that's something, you know, we need to be seen by our father. And when the father's not there, I think we look, we look to fill that. And if I may ask, did you find him? Uh, well, it, it's interestingly, I reconnected with him briefly. Um, God, I think I must have been 13, discovered I had a half-brother I didn't know I had. And then uh, after my son was born, for a very odd afternoon, uh, there was a family reunion back in Blue Springs, Missouri, which is this little tiny town that we were from outside of Kansas City. And uh, he showed up for a few hours. And it was clear to me and my brother and pretty much everybody around that we were way better off to be raised away from this guy than with him. Uh, that was really obvious. But to, to really answer your question, I think throughout my life, I've sought mentors and I've been lucky to find them. And I think that's part of what you do is you look for someone who, uh, who can see you in a way that a father who was absent uh, didn't. God, I love that sentiment. No one's explained that that well <laughs> before. Looking for someone who sees you. Yeah. Yeah. Um, God, that's lovely. Yeah, and I mean it's a it's a it's a tangent, um, but I don't know. You just I, I'm talking to you now. You know, you said you're 69. You you come across as a kind of very happy, well accomplished, you know, um, positively reflective individual. But well, thank you. Do do you miss it? The travel, the the, the freight hopping. Oh boy, uh, sure. I mean, you, you're a surfer. Can you ever be near the shore and not keep your eye on the break? Um, so there's a cute story. My wife and I were, we had just bought a pop-up trailer 10 years ago or whatever it was. And we were going to go north and we needed a place to camp. And so we stopped at Castle Crags, which is near a little town called Dunsmuir, uh, which is going north. And the one complaint people had said about, oh, you know, it's a beautiful campground, but the freight trains go right by all night. We slept wonderfully. We just absorbed the sound of it. So do I miss it? Sure. But I get to experience it vicariously every time I hear a train whistle in the distance. Yeah. And the temptation has never been too much and you've never just hopped on? No. Um, it's, I understand my limitations. And, and having, uh, having kids brought a certain level of maturity. It's, there, there's an anecdote that when people ask why I don't still ride, um, I caught a train, a friend of mine, my best friend from high school, and he's been my business partner almost ever since, caught a train out of Washington, uh, out of Portland again, going east, uh, went to a place called Pasco. And we had what was called a flat wheel car, and you don't think of trains having flat wheels with these gigantic steel wheels. And if an engineer has hit the brakes too hard, he's ground a flat spot on the wheels. We were in a flat wheel car. Uh, we couldn't get out. Rich says that he literally saw me asleep, bouncing inches off the floor as the thing <laughs> is going. It, so just a brutal, punishing ride. We get to Pasco and get out. 
And there are a couple of, you know, we're, we're a mess from an, a, a whole night of this. We get out and look a few cars down and a couple of what we then termed old hobos, they might've been 40 or 45, were barely able to get out of the car. They were so beat up just from the experience of riding and looking at physically how hard it is on your body doing that. I remember that every time there's a little ink, oh, I'll just get on and take a, you know, take a short trip. No, <laughs> those days are gone. I am, however, um, in April, I'm doing a thing that I don't think has been done for a hundred years. Um, we've planned a Amtrak book tour for the release of my book. Uh, it's 15 cities, 30 days, 6,500 miles. And so I'm going to do it all by train. So that's as close as I'm going to get, I think. Oh, but that's a wonderful idea. Yeah. And so, yeah, I guess, I mean, do trains still do it in the same way they used to? Yes. Uh, there, Man, there's so many fewer of them. You know, the trains only run once a day. Unlike you guys in the UK, your train service is fantastic. Uh, Amtrak does the best it can. But uh, you get, you know, if you're lucky, you get one train a day. And uh, so that's that's your choice. They they aren't full, although I think maybe they'll start to refill a little bit more after after COVID hopefully subsides more. But yeah, the rails are still here. They're mostly used for freight. In our northeast, there are there are better passenger service has been improving. Um, they've been replacing the roadbed. They're doing higher speed trains. I think we just you know we lost sixty years of what could have been great infrastructure improvement and use but we fell in love with cars and um, yeah that's what happened i guess yeah it's a difficult curse to overcome that one. Oh man but, yeah um so again a huge tangent but you know you kind of go through your cv and you kind of go geez this guy's traveled because you worked in a hospital in africa right yeah 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 it was yes um it is interesting looking back after almost 70 years that it would look like I set out to travel and seek adventure. I'm not sure that I ever did that. I just, it just is something I did. Um, and I'm thrilled that I did. Uh, Zimbabwe was a tremendous experience. Uh, a, a good friend who I run with here, who is a doctor, his son was in pre-med and um, he was, he had volunteered in a hospital, Chinamoyo um, in Zimbabwe. And he'd been there six months, and Lee and I said, you know, well, let's, let's go spend some time there, and then we'll come home with him. And it was fantastic. Uh, there, you know, it was the only hospital within, I don't know, 50 miles. Uh, there, it was, God, was it four hours of unpaved road to get there? Um, the, and the, the, the quality of life, the graciousness of the people, um, the amazing work done by these folks who were, uh, you know, the, the government was falling apart. Inflation was thousands of percent. It's not an exaggeration to say that you would go to the store to buy a loaf of bread and take a wheelbarrow full of money to do it. Um, so being in the middle of that, in this, where life was actually very simple, um, folks raised what they could, um, they lived in very small villages. 
they were incredi incredibly gracious to us. Uh, it, it was it was delightful. I, I made a small documentary about it. Um, it, it was a great experience. But I'm, I, I mean, obviously, I'm fascinated by what happened, but almost more so just how you get to the point where you think, firstly, that's a good idea, but also <laughs> how you gain the confidence to just do it. That's a good question. That's a good question. I, I, I think... I think experience builds on experience and the notion that doing something out of the ordinary, going back in my youth to working at the state hospital when I was just a kid, you see yourself, I think maybe we see ourselves best when stood up against an unfamiliar background. And so the notion that, you know, I, I think I know who I am in my regular life. Who am I when I'm in this different place? And so I think there's a lot to be gained there. Yeah, there's there's the thrill too, but the notion of not say, not saying no. I think what you're getting to is why in the world would you say yes to go do these things? There's something in it for me, clearly. Um, it's not that I necessarily go looking for those experiences, but I almost never say no when one presents itself. And how old were you when you went out to Zimbabwe? That I must have been in my mid fifties. Oh, geez. So, uh, yeah. so hang on. So, because I, where I was now going with my little plan. <laughs> uh -oh. So you've, you've scuppered me because my question plan was okay, okay. So he rode the freights and he went to Africa, and I think I've got another note here that says you went to the Andes, and right. I assume all of that was ticked off in the twenties, and then you oh, no. had kids, <laughs> and then you've just written since. No, no, no. So uh, let me circle back to the fact that Jan, who rode trains with me, is still married to me, and, <laughs> and one of the reasons I think that works is she has always understood that that's that's a piece of who I am is the ability to go and and do these things that would seem out of the ordinary and, and, and certainly are, but that they feed something that I, I clearly need to do um, and, and thrive on. It's not something that I, you know, you're, you're forcing me to examine my motivations here. It, it, it's, it's, I don't wake up every morning thinking, what adventure can I go on today? But I, I'm certainly attracted to the notion of discovering new things about myself in, by being in a new environment. Um, I, I think that's it. And, uh, man, and, and I still want to do that. I had a trip planned to Bhutan, um, literally April, two years ago, and we had to cancel it because of COVID. Um, I want to do that. You know, I, I, I was uh, in Tibet four years ago, five years ago, and I, I want more of that. Uh, it, it's such an extraordinary, you've been clearly, uh, I think, in your climbing. Man, talk about an otherworldly experience and and the cultural piece of it. it. It's I find most that I like just getting to know the people. Uh, I think that's the best of it. And you know, I would be perfectly happy to go to a valley in Bhutan and spend a week uh, helping out on a farm. I think that would be great because it would give you a sense of the texture of the place, of how it really works, and of the people. Yeah, I mean, again, you've you've <laughs> scuppered my line of questioning because that's where I was going was asking you about whether it's the place or the people, but it's so obviously from your work, it's the people, isn't it? And yeah, yeah, totally. 
told. But what what is it that draws you to those stories? I don't I don't know. I mean, I I, I wish I wish I did. It, it's is it maybe a sense of identity with place? Maybe it's. Uh, I mean, I, I was on a trek in the Andes. Um, going to a place called Choca Corral, which is sort of like Machu Picchu's sister city, but very, very, very rarely visited. Uh, you, they're about to screw it up by putting a tram in and making it possible to go. When when we went, 50 people a day would go, because you had to trek for three days to get there. But one of the most memorable pieces of that was from Choca Corral, you go really back trails that are very rarely used. Um, to the backside of Machu Picchu. And one night we were at a place called Mizell, I think, a little farm up on a peak. You know, you look down the edge and you're looking 5,000 feet down to a river bottom. Little farm has been there forever. We're, my friend and I are laying in our tent and we're listening to the farmer and the guide and his friend tell stories in a language we don't understand but something about the way they were speaking made it perfectly obvious that they were basically connected to this experience and this place in a way that I found amazingly attractive. Um, and so, yeah, that's the, I mean, you get to know a place through its people. Why do people stay where they're at? You know, what is it about that place that does it? I love Glen Ellen. I, 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 I love to travel the world. I don't ever want to not live here because this is a place where I, I, I identify as my home. But it's, isn't it great to see how others do that in other parts of the world and, and how they connect? Oh, but see, now I have to go there because if, you're, if you find yourself analyzing why other people find... Um, solace and and a sense of home in a single place what is it about that place that does it for you okay i've got i, I gotta see i've got to watch what i say you're gonna <laughs> you're gonna hold my feet to the fire <laughs> uh, and that's that's really okay well i i don't know are we all looking for a place where we belong and somehow you when you get there you know it maybe that's true um for me, I'm sure part of it is that early experience at the state hospital. I was just a kid. I mean, literally, the state hospital I'm speaking of is just two miles down the road. Jack London's Beauty Ranch is two miles up the road, the other direction. Um, this place was a little country town when I got here in the 70s. Um, housing was cheap. There were hippies who lived across the creek. It was, we built our own house on weekends with, you know, we work all week to earn some money to buy lumber to build a house on the weekend. I mean, that's that's that's, that's what we did. That's this is where this this is where we found ourselves, and interestingly, found our community. When our kids started going to school, a bunch of us met parents, couples who were the same age as our kids' age. It, this, I'm speaking to you now as a as a young father, uh, <laughs> and a group of ten families of us connected in <clears throat> 1985 we're still connected we every month we get together at one another's house for soup group these same 10 families uh we have taken trips together to mexico we meet every sunday morning and those of us who can still run go running very slowly the rest of us walk through the regional park 
Um, we, I was in a music group. Uh, I played bass for 30 years with people in this group. These are my peeps, man. I mean, this is, this is, we know where we belong because our people are here. And that, so that's, that's why we're here. That makes a lot of sense. I envy it in a lot of ways, actually, but maybe it's all to come. Well, it, I, I, I wish that for you. We understand that it's rare. And, and we, we were in the right place at the right time with the right people. Having that sense of connection to... We, we, the term community gets bantered around a lot. We've got one. And we nurture it and we value it. And it doesn't mean it's all sunshine and roses um but we all feel lucky to have found this extended family this community in a way that so few people get to yeah yeah no it sounds like it and um i mean obviously you you have a very adventurous life when you travel and when you're on the road that's clear but do you think you live an adventurous life in your daily life well sometimes um it's and I, th- I think I may have shared with you the notion of um, going on a, a completely unexpected adventure here just a few weeks ago or a month ago. It's because of my association with the state hospital, which is in a state of flux. It's this big facility. It's now been closed for several years. The state's trying to decide what to do with it. The community is very concerned that it will get sold to a developer and will become this huge eyesore in the middle of this beautiful place. One of the things that's there is a the cemetery for the residents. The institution was open for over 100 years. There are 1,900 unmarked graves in the cemetery. And a fellow reached out to me. He knows I'm a writer and I have an audience. And he said, can you write us something in support of maintaining this cemetery, making it, it you know, so it doesn't ever get changed and so there'll be some memorial or something associated with it. Sure, absolutely. I said, I'd be glad to write something. So literally on the way back from the store or town, I'd been driving past for decades past this. I said, well, I better go take a look. I remember it from when I was a kid, parked my car, walked up the hill, and it brought back memories of when I was at the state hospital in the 70s, thinking that I had seen stacks of headstones, grave markers, laid on their sides. They'd all been knocked over, uh, used as erosion control. And say, well, God, I wonder if any of that's around. So I beat through the bushes. I go down through a creek because all traces, virtually all traces of the cemetery are gone. And damned if I didn't find two of these old headstones. So literally coming back from the store, there was an adventure waiting for me within five minutes of my house. So does that happen every day? No. But boy, it feels pretty special when it does. Yeah. And it seems like, I don't know is my opinion rather than yours, but it seems like if you're of a certain mindset and if you're willing to let them kind of, if you're willing to accidentally stumble upon them, then they're often there to be found. Yeah. 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 It's, I, we don't see what we're not looking for. And so if, if, if you cast your eyes at the right angle to the horizon, there's a lot to see, I think. And it doesn't have to be over the next hill. It can be right next door. That's a much more eloquent way of putting it. <laughs> you should be a writer. <laughs> okay, okay. I, that sounds like a good idea. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so, I mean, start to wrap it up. But on that note, uh, maybe it'd be great to to hear a little bit about your writing and your career and what it is that you've written. Sure. 
Um, so after I discovered that really writing is what I wanted to do, again, with the amazing support from Jan, we, we she had been a teacher for a while. I had been managing a feed store at Sebastopol, a little town where I grew up. Uh, it was 1980. We had our son. I said, I want to make a go of this. I want to be a writer. I want to devote myself to it full time. So we cashed in all our chips, um, which added up to about 15,000 bucks, I think, which seemed like a fortune then. And I took a year off to write. Uh, I wrote a short story every day for a month. I wrote two novels. I got an agent. I got another agent. Um, one of the books that I wrote, it was The Last Professional, which I started writing in a boxcar in Watsonville, California, back in the, about 1980. Um, nothing clicked. We couldn't quite get there and had to start making a living. I uh, had a young family, had another child coming. So I pretty much um, shifted focus. And I don't know if you've read The Natural by Bernard, Bernard Malmood or seen the Robert Redford movie, The, Red, the no, Natural. No. There's a parallel there. It's a young man who is gifted as a baseball player. Uh, he's off to the majors are going to sign him. And he, through a set of circumstances, it doesn't work out. And he essentially sets that aside for 20 years. So he gets signed as a rookie in his 40s or near 50s. And I feel like that. Um, and that I've, you know, I had a good start. I know I'm a good writer. It didn't work out. I've gone on to have a, a very rewarding career with my best friend from high school. We run a manufacturing business that we're very proud of. But it's given me now over the last six, eight, ten years a chance to shift my focus back. And so I've found a great editor. For any writer listening to this, you need a great editor. Don't settle for anything less. Um, and so I've got... This novel that's coming out in a week, uh, it's already a bestseller on bookshop.org. It's already a bestseller on Libro FM. It's the fulfillment of a lifetime ambition. Um, it feels pretty damn good. So this is your um, this is your first novel, having written? This is my first novel that's conventionally published. Um, I've uh, self-published three other books and lots of short stories uh, in journals and such. Yeah. But what is it that draws you to fiction? Oh boy. Well, I think all I think the best fiction's all autobiographical in some way. And so I th and I think I'm speaking for myself, but I think it may be reasonably universal. Writers write to share. They want to share their work. They want to share themselves. Um, and while I have the greatest admiration for nonfiction writers, and man, there's some great writing being done, and what better time to do it than right now? Um, the notion that you can connect with a reader in a way that they can see themselves and their life experience in your work, um, I think that's what, that's what keeps me at it, is that I get a chance to share myself and also hopefully let my readers reflect a bit on themselves through what they're reading so yeah i'm i'm, I'm a sucker for fiction brilliant okay well um we'll draw it to a close i am um, always ask everybody the same two questions at the end um interpret them however you wish okay but um what scares you oh well it's interesting what scares me um failure is no fun it, and 
I've had some I've had some fairly significant failures in my life. I went bankrupt uh, at one point, and so that's no fun. Does it scare me? I don't know. Um, I'm. This may sound a little off-putting to people, but um, I, I I don't want to die. And you know, there are folks who will say I've come to grips with that. I'm comfortable with that. I know it's going to happen. I understand that view. I appreciate it. But I'm not there. I like my life, and um, so I'm. I'm not. And, and I guess you'd call me an agnostic. I mean, I I think of myself as a reasonably spiritual person, but not in a conventional way. I kind of don't think there's any. There's another there. There. I think this is it. And so, what scares me? Yeah, I'd, I'd like this ride to continue um, and to be able to enjoy it for a good long time. Yeah, that's honest and i can wholeheartedly relate (laughs) um what brings you hope oh man oh man uh small acts of kindness um that often go unobserved people taking care of one another um in, in the broad sense i am hopeful for us as a species i am hopeful for our society it gets so easy to feel defeated and despondent. Um, we live in challenging times. There's a lot of ins- insanity abroad. Um, it's disquieting when people ignore facts, ignore the truth, when they put crazy belief above anything that might be valid simply because it's easier for them to do it. Um, so that's all disquieting. On the other hand, I think that I don't know who it was that said the arc of human history is towards improvement or that I'm blowing the quote, but I think we're, I think we get better. I think, and, and I continue to hope that we will. I think if we focus too narrowly on what's happening right now, we miss the broader sense of how much better things have gotten for how many more people. So I have hope for us, but you got to step back and take the long view sometimes to sustain it. I buy that. Okay. That's brilliant. Thank you so much, Ed. It's been amazing. Oh, Matt, this has been a treat. I really appreciate it. Thanks for listening. For more information and to stay up to date, you can follow along on Instagram at The Adventure Podcast. The podcast is hosted by Matt Pycroft and is produced and distributed by Orla O'Murray and Alex Hall. You can email us with a guest recommendation or some feedback at info at theadventurepodcast.co.uk and please do leave us an honest review on iTunes. They help us bring the podcast to a wider audience. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. 
The Real Housewives is a guilty pleasure for most, but if you're looking to not feel guilty about that pleasure, tune in to Everything Iconic with me, Danny Pellegrino, where I break down all the messy moments and behind-the-scenes antics of Bravo's popular franchise. And on Everything Iconic, I also interview celebrity guests like Kelly Ripa, Kiki Palmer, Drew Barrymore, Cameron Diaz, and more about their guilty pleasures, their past work, and so much more. So if you're pop culture obsessed and find yourself watching way too much reality TV like me, tune in to Everything Iconic with Danny Pellegrino, wherever you listen to podcasts. ACAST helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. ACAST.com.